I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm John Schwartz, a writer at The Intercept, filling in for Ryan Graham on this week's episode of Deconstructed. Most people with a progressive perspective are used to hearing fancy Ivy League economists tell them, sure, it might be nice to have a country that worked for regular people, but sadly, as you can see from the lines on this graph, that is impossible. It's just science. Today on Deconstructed, I'm talking to Dean Baker, an economist who makes the case really convincingly that that's just wrong, that the lines on that graph don't have much to do with reality, and that the United States could in fact provide a much better life for regular people. I worked for Dean long ago, uh, just for a short time, but it was long enough to make me believe that he would be one of America's most prominent public intellectuals if we cared about things like the public or intellect. I hope this episode of Deconstructed will get even more people on the Dean Baker bandwagon. Uh, We talked about many of the greatest hits of his career, including the role he played in helping thwart the privatization of Social Security by just asking super simple questions, and how he was a voice in the wilderness in the mid-2000s warning about the housing bubble, which then did burst and almost destroyed the world economy. Then we talked about some of his interesting and exciting ideas for the future— Of course, interesting and exciting is not a phrase that usually applies to economics, but it actually does here. Dean Baker works at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive think tank in Washington. He's written many books. The most recent is Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. You can get that via his website for free. Dean Thank you so much for coming on Deconstructed. It is great to talk to you. Thanks a lot for having me on. So I would like to start by saying why I personally get so much out of what you do. And there are two reasons. Uh, the first is that I believe the United States, you know, like most places on earth, is run by bullies. And some of it is straightforward physical bullying up to and including killing us. Although by historical standards, you know, that's thankfully pretty rare, at least inside of America. The bullying that they use is intellectual bullying. And what I admire is how you stand up to the intellectual bullies, uh, just in defense of regular people. And I think, you know, inspire other people to think that they can stand up to this bullying too. So that's number one. And uh, secondly, you know, in America, it's supposed to be good to be creative, but creativity is defined very narrowly, like, you know, making a movie or writing a song or something. But I'd say that you are extremely creative in a way that doesn't get recognized because you are continually coming up with ways to use the tools of economics, you know, some of which are very valid, to make life better for everybody. So I'm wondering, do you think this describes what you're up to in general? And if so, uh, what is it in your background that gave you this mindset? Can we blame your parents? Like, are there other people who need to be held accountable? Like, what, what happened to you to set you on this path? Well, that's very complimentary. Um, I guess you could blame my mother. Uh, it's all her fault. But, you know, I, I, I guess um, probably the biggest thing, I came to Washington in 1992 and began working on Social Security. And 
at that time, I was inclined to have more respect for the economics profession in the sense that I assumed that the people, at least the leading lights in the profession, knew what they were talking about, that they were smart people. I'm sure they are smart people, but that they thought through the angles and there weren't easy ways to get them, you know, so that you had to really do your homework and read things carefully and look through things 10, 20, 30, 40 times because they had gotten all the easy ones. So it was going to be very, very difficult. And in the course of Social Security debate, I was really obsessed with Social Security because there were real efforts to cut it. This is, I'm thinking, the early, mid-90s. Um, really, it was bipartisan. You had plenty of Democrats, so I'm happy to blame Republicans, but there are plenty of Democrats. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was very anxious to cut Social Security. Clinton had gone along with a plan to cut Social Security. So it, it, was, it was really bipartisan. And to my view, it's a tremendously important program, um, both because there's tens of millions of people who depend on it, but it's also kind of a model because it's just a, a great success. It does what it's supposed to do. So if you, if you like government social programs, Social Security is a fantastic model. There's very little fraud, keeps tens of millions of elderly out of poverty. So it does exactly what it's supposed to do very efficiently. So I thought it's a, it's, it's a great program. We had to protect it. And I was determined to do everything I could to protect it. And in the course of it, I, I just you know, was kind of amazed. I'll just mention two things. They're both important. And they amazed me in terms of what the profession missed, basically. So one of the items, when I mentioned Moynihan, the way he wanted to cut Social Security was to reduce the annual cost of living adjustment. So as it stood then and as it stands now, people's benefits are increased in accordance with the rate of inflation as measured with the consumer price index. So Moynihan got to be in his bonnet that, oh, my God, consumer price index overstates the true rate of inflation. And he got this crusade that, oh, we're going to adjust Social Security for the true rate of inflation, not the consumer price index. And that was at least one percentage point less. He had some experts come in saying one and a half. Some even said two. So you got all these economists out there. And it was really very much uh, consensus within the profession. There were a few outliers, but the overwhelming majority of economists weighing in on this were saying, yeah, it overstates inflation, one percentage point, maybe more, but one percentage point. I won't go through all the gory details, but one of the points that I was making, and I was trying to put together the case arguing the other side without many allies, but one of the points I was making is, okay, let's say that's true. Let's say the consumer price index overstates the true rate of inflation by one percentage point. Pick a different number if you like, but make it one percentage point. Well, what that means is that real wages, real income, they've been rising by one percentage point more rapidly than we thought. And if they've been rising more rapidly, that means that we were poorer. So just to ignore compounding, just a simple arithmetic, if you go back 30 years and the rate of inflation, the consumer price index overstated the rate of inflation by one percentage point a year for 30 years. Then we go back 30 years, we're actually 30% poorer than if we just looked at the data. And what you could show is that in the fairly recent past, most of us would have been living in poverty. The median household income in, say, 1960, I'm looking back from, say, 95, the median household income in 1960 would be below the 1995 poverty level. That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Going the other way, if in fact incomes are growing one percentage point more rapidly than we thought, well, then our kids go out 20, 30 years, they're going to be way wealthier than we ever could have imagined because it's very hard to raise income growth by a percentage point a year. 
So I was making this point, which is, to my mind, it's simple arithmetic, it's definitional. And I was finding economists were looking at me with blank faces, like, what are you talking about? And I'd, I'd be talking to them, not deliberately, but like they were third graders. I'm just going, you know, one percentage point. That means we had one percentage point more income growth. And that will continue. Anyhow, the fact that I had such a hard time convincing economists at elite universities that this has to change how we look at the world, how we look at the past, how we look at the future, it was just mind-boggling to me. I, can't, I couldn't believe that this is anything other than you say it and they instantly understand it. And again, I don't know whether it's motivated reasoning. They're not stupid people. I don't think any of them are stupid people. But they were so entrenched in their way of thinking and their desire, I'll say, to cut Social Security. They really, I think to this day, many of them did not understand. You can't just change the consumer price index, say it's been overstating inflation by a percentage point, and not have a totally different view of you know, our recent past and what we think about the future. So that was one item. The other one was there was this big effort by both, again, this bipartisan put Social Security money in, into the stock market. Now, the Republicans all want to have individual accounts. They want to privatize it. So instead of paying into Social Security 12.4%, uh, we'd only pay in maybe 7.4%. We take our other five percentage points and put it into a, a stock fund and you know, it'd be managed by their friends on Wall Street. Needless to say, they'd get a lot of money. So that was their plan. Um, the Democrats, on the other hand, said, oh, we're going to make Social Security much better off. We're going to take the trust fund. We're going to put much of the trust fund into the stock market. Now, one of the things I was looking at was at that time, the stock market was very high, as it is today. And they were saying that we're going to get the same stock returns that we did historically, that back over 50, 60, 70 years. And they said the stock market gives you 7% real returns. If you look at a long period average, a 10-year, 20-year average, it gives you 7% real returns. So I said, well, I, that doesn't make sense to me because the stock market's very high, price to earnings ratios, in other words, are very high. And we have projections of profit growth in the Social Security projections. So that's not, you know, not to say that they're right or anything, but we want consistent projections. So if we think that that's how much profits are going to grow when we're looking at projections for Social Security, we should also use those same projections if we're looking at what stock returns are going to be. And what I did, again, very simple arithmetic, I just said, okay. If we're going to get 7% real returns and profits are only growing 1.5% a year, and that's what their projection showed, it might have been 1.7, I'd have to double check that, but in any case, under two, how are you going to get 7% real returns a year? And I showed you either have to have a story where they're paying out more than all their profits as dividends, and no one thinks that makes sense, or alternatively, you'd have price to earnings ratios of like two or 300 to one, and no one thinks that makes sense. And again, this was just simple arithmetic. But again, I had a hard time. I was arguing, you know, people like Larry Summers going, oh, 7% real returns, you know, most prominent economists in the country, Martin Feldstein on the other side, 7% real returns. I was going, there's no way you could do that. It doesn't make sense. So there too, you know, again, there was nothing complex about this. It was about as simple as could be. But they were so set in their ways, they didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to say, oh, yeah maybe we can't get 7% real returns. The numbers won't add up. So those two together led me to believe that, yeah, these guys, I'm, again, I'm not questioning their intelligence. I'm not in the business of doing IQ testing, but there are a lot of very low-hanging fruit where they just don't want to think about it. 
So that's kind of, you know, the approach I've had the last, I don't know, quarter century that I shouldn't assume that they've thought through all the angles and there's no easy pickings there because very often they haven't thought through the angles and there's a lot of, you know, sort of very simple things in front of their face that they're not seeing. Yeah. And since I witnessed the uh, social security battle up close involving these people on this issue, you know, so people understand traditionally what you would like to do is buy low and sell high, right? But because the stock market was so high in the late 1990s, this was a situation where they were recommending that everybody, you know, buy high. And how could you get the historical returns, you know, if you were buying in the stock market at these ridiculous heights of, of that moment? And uh, I specifically remember Martin Feldstein. Uh, people probably don't know who he is uh, if you are a normal human being. But in the economics profession, certainly my understanding is that he is the top of the tippy top. Like he's as fancy as you get. And you wrote this letter asking people to explain how you could get these 7% returns and sent it to a million different people. The only one who responded, as I remember, was Martin Feldstein. And he was incredibly condescending and said something along the lines of, you know, I think it would be good if you stopped wasting everyone's time with this simple mistake. And in fact, he was the one. He was the person who was wrong. You very politely wrote back to him. And as I recall, he never responded because he realized, in fact, that he'd been wrong and incredibly condescending. And that's what I have in mind in terms of talking about you and intellectual bullies. Like that was his approach. He was wrong. He wanted to bully you into silence and he failed. And uh, I've always admired that. And I think people should, you know, follow you and the, <laughs> the work that you do because you are so good at that. Well, thanks. And yeah, no, I remember that well. And he never, uh, <laughs> I had some other exchanges with him. And for people not familiar with Martin Feldstein, you're right, no, normal people wouldn't be. He, he passed on about five or six years ago, but he was a professor at Harvard for many years. And he was also the head, the president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is tremendously important in the economics profession. Because if you're a, a National Bureau of Economic Research fellow, that means you could have all your working papers put out by NBER and they're circulated to all the top economists or NBER fellows. So it really, it's an enormous stepping stone. And, and I'll just say, you know, not getting into details here, but Feldstein, I would say you could find good liberal economists who were NBR fellows, but there definitely was affirmative action for conservatives. I'll just put it that way. And and I don't think that was accidental. Uh, Feldstein, the other thing Feldstein did, which I give him credit for, very uh, devious. He taught the intro econ class at Harvard for decades. And it was the sort of thing uh, most Harvard professors don't want to do. They want to do their research. They want to be bothered with freshmen, sophomores asking stupid. You know. Well, it was very clever because here are all these bright, ambitious kids at Harvard and they want to take their, their interest in economics. Well, they get Martin Feldstein and you either stay in economics and you're likely to do Martin Feldstein type economics, or as, as I've known many people, they go, that's disgusting. I'm going to take sociology. I'm going to take history. I'm going to get whatever and chases them out of the profession. So it was very clever of him. And he really played an enormous role in shifting the economics profession to the right over the eighties, the nineties, and into the uh, first decade of this century. Yeah, and I think we we shouldn't let this moment go by without also recognizing uh, one of his other accomplishments, which is that he was on the the board of AIG, which people may remember was 
the insurance company that uh, helped destroy the world economy in 2007 and 2008 with credit default swaps. So he, he was there supervising that as well. He, he did a lot in his life. That's right. And I'm sure he made lots of money on that board. He played a starring role in the film. Um, I'm trying to blank on it now. Uh, anyhow, it was a film about the, the, the crash. And he was asked, did he have any regrets? And he paused for a moment. And then he goes, no regrets in, in his role as a director that he hadn't said anything. Yeah. And so I, I think that apart from the specifics of Arden Feldstein, like, like really what I learned from following this along as you were working on it, was what you're talking about is that at the, at the very top of U.S. society, the, the people who are most supposed to be the smartest, the people who are the most sophisticated, are absolutely blind to what to what they're doing. And I I helped fact check uh, the book that you co-wrote about Social Security, which is called Social Security: The Phony Crisis. And what I came to believe was that every political issue in the United States is like Social Security. It's all lies and nonsense for the most part. Everything is a phony crisis. And in fact, having learned that was one reason why, like in 2003, I bet someone $1,000 that we were going to invade Iraq and find no weapons of mass destruction because it followed the exact same template. It was a phony crisis. It was convincing on the surface, but if you poked it a little bit, it all immediately collapsed. And so... I would encourage people to understand that, that you can just nudge these things just a little bit and like the entire edifice uh, collapses into dust. Yeah. Well, I think that's very much true. And yeah, I remember the lead up to the war very well. And uh, to be honest, I never thought we were going to invade. I actually thought Bush, I thought this was about getting him through the 2002 elections because his popularity had plummeted and we were in a recession, of course, and his popularity had plummeted. And I had assumed that this was about getting him through the elections, having a good uh, 2002 election. And then he was going to, after being all belligerent and everything, he was going to say, oh, it was all about getting the inspectors back. And actually, you know, as you and I know, Saddam Hussein never threw the inspectors out, but whatever, you know, he would, he would say it was all about getting the inspectors back. We had to convince him we were prepared to invade and that, that led him to back down and then he could declare victory and, you know, everyone would be happy. I'd be happy, you know, um, but he, you know, anyhow, obviously he did invade, he had other, other intentions there. And of course the, the story about weapons of mass destruction was a joke as, as we know. So let's then move forward a little bit, past social security, past the Iraq war, to the gigantic housing bubble and how that eventually came to create the biggest recession since the Great Depression in the 1930s. And you were there at the time, and what were you saying about it? And what were you warning people about? Well, we had just been through the stock bubble. And this is, again, one of the things that isn't fully appreciated. We actually had a pretty bad recession in 2001. I just saw on Twitter some economists saying, yeah, it really wasn't much of a recession. We went four years without creating jobs. That's the only time that had happened since the Great Depression. It happened again with the uh, the Great Recession after the collapse of the housing bubble. Point being, though, that bubbles collapsing, when they're driving the economy, and the stock bubble was, they have serious repercussions. Um, it's not easy to replace that demand. So I was writing beginning in 2002, going like, well, you know, houses are really driving the economy now. Is this a bubble? And it's kind of funny because what actually convinced me was Alan Greenspan gave testimony on this. I think it was April of 2002. 
And he gave reasons as to, oh, no, the house prices, this is justified by the fundamentals. And none of the reasons he gave made any sense. So, again, it's one of these things, if you have good reasons, like if you really have evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you present the good evidence. You don't present nonsense. So here's Alan Greenspan, chair of the Fed. He has plenty of economists working for him. And the reasons he gave as to why the run-up in house prices made sense didn't make sense. So... I was very convinced at that point that we had a bubble. And of course, the bubble kept growing, kept growing way longer than I would have expected, in, in large part because we had such bad financing, uh, the subprime, the flood of subprime and alt-A loans. Alt-A loans were even worse. I won't get into details here, but even worse than the subprime in many ways. But in any case, uh, that kept the bubble going through 2006 into 2007. And to me, it was very evident when it burst, it was going to be really, really bad news. Now, of course, we had the financial crisis, which was, to my view, kind of inevitable fallout. I mean, you have all these loans backed by the value of houses and houses lose half their value, which they did in many areas, some cases 60 or even 70%. But in any case, nationwide, they lost about 30%, more than 30%. You have a lot of bad loans. And naturally, the people holding those loans, their their books are going to look really, really bad. But to my view, the mo- most important thing was that the bubble was driving the economy. And you could see this. I mean, it wasn't like you needed some magic crystal ball. You just looked at the quarterly GDP accounts. Residential construction usually is around 3% of GDP, 35 It peaked at almost 7% of GDP. So putting that in today's dollars, um, if you have three percent, four percentage points of GDP, let's say, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but just for simplicity, Four percentage points of GDP would be $900 billion a year in annual demand. Everyone was celebrating the, the bill the IRA just passed, uh, signed by President Biden. That was $700 billion over 10 years. This is $900 billion over one year. The other part of the story was there was a huge surge in consumption because people were borrowing against their homes and spending it. There, people would take advantage of the fact that they had a home that they bought for 200 it was now worth 400 so they would borrow against the additional equity they use it to take a vacation maybe they'd remodel their home maybe they pay for their kids college it wasn't necessarily a wasteful thing to do but the problem was if the price fell back to 200 you suddenly were underwater in in your mortgage so that consumption also disappeared and that was the basis of the great recession we saw a massive fall off in demand that could not be easily replaced. Now, if we had a big enough stimulus, sure, you know, and people would say that I'd have arguments with left Keynesians and say, well, we could just spend more, which we could, but the politics wasn't there as we know. So basically to my view, we'd gotten ourselves in a situation where the collapse of the housing bubble guaranteed that we would have a severe recession, which of course we did. And again, it also gave us the financial crisis. And that was one where, you know, the, Obama, well, Bush administration originally with the TARP, but then the Obama administration followed through. They acted to to protect the the banks, and we end up with an even more uh, concentrated banking industry after the collapse of the bubble and what we had before. And now I should mention that the same thing that was true with Social Security was also true with the housing bubble in the sense that in 2005, I interviewed uh, a guy named Greg Mankiw, who is a professor of economics at Harvard, uh, just like Martin Feldstein. He is almost as fancy as Martin Feldstein. He had been the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the George W. Bush administration. By this point, when I talked to him, he'd left. He'd gone back to Harvard. And so again, it's 2005, the height of the housing bubble. I asked him about that. I asked him if he had any concerns. 
And he refused to even accept the premise, the, the idea that there was a housing bubble. And he was outraged at the idea that, that mere humans could say that there were such things as financial bubbles, that we could disagree with the market, that the market was not providing the correct value for everything. And I mentioned some of the things that you'd written. And he really sputtered and was very, very angry about this. And he said, well, so so if this guy, Dean Baker, thinks this, why doesn't he just you know sell his house? Yeah, well, I did sell. I had a condo in Washington, D.C. that I did sell in May of 2004, which turned out to be very close to the peak of uh, the market for that particular area. I mean, I, I was not expecting to get the peak. I just uh, felt uh, my wife's also an economist that we, we would have felt like idiots if we were holding on to a condo that had basically tripled in value since we bought it. I think it was eight years earlier, back like 97. So we, we would have felt really stupid if we had held on to it and its price plunged. So um, that was our, our reason for selling it. We didn't want to feel really stupid. And as I say, we did happen to get very close to the peak, uh, which wasn't our expectation. It was just self-defense. But yeah, we did act based on what we thought to be the case. I should also say, for better or worse, um, I got my 401k money out of the stock market in, uh, I think it was March of 98. I wish I could have said March of 2000, which was the peak. But in any case, I, I, I do act, you know, when I become convinced of something like that, I do put my money where my mouth is. I don't have that much money, but that's part of the story. I don't want to see it disappear because there I am saying this is a bubble, this is a bubble, and then it collapses and I go down with everyone else. Yeah. And so you took the action that made sense, as I understand it. You you sold your condo and then read it until the bubble collapsed and then bought again. Yeah. And then uh, President Obama was nice enough to give me a first time buyer's tax credit, because if you hadn't owned a home for three years, in our case, it was about five, you were eligible for, I think we got $8,000. Horrible policy, just to be clear. I, you know, I argued against it. I wish I hadn't done it. But, you know, in any case, uh, you know, they want to give me 8000 bucks. I'm going to take it. So uh, uh, anyhow, yeah. So that was the story. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So let's, let's come out to the present day the incredible malfeasance of the people who run the United States, like intellectually, morally, financially, in every way. What do you think is going on in the economy right now that people do not understand, that is not being portrayed accurately? Well, there's been this real effort in the media to just trash the economy under Biden. I've really never seen anything like it. And, and just to be clear, I understand a lot of people have a hard time. Just let's use a little common sense here. 10% of the population roughly is in poverty. Take another 10%, they're not much above it. 
So you could say 20% of the population at any point in time is struggling. So if I want to show you someone who's, you know, got a kid, two kids, they're working part-time, maybe they're working full-time, they're trying to pay the rent, they're trying to, you know, put food on the table, you could find millions of people in that boat anytime you want. So you could pick the very best years of the economy in, in my lifetime. So let's say 2000, everyone thinks that's a good year. And it was, there were 20 million people who were struggling to put food on the table. 219 before we had the, the pandemic. Again, a comparatively good time. Again, tens of millions of people struggling to put food on the table. They aren't typically front and center in the news. The media has decided to put them front and center in the news. That's, that's a choice by the media. That's not reflecting economic reality. And the points I've been making has been actually people at the bottom have done comparatively well. So if you look at wages, I'm picking a restaurant and hotels just because it's the lowest paid sector. I understand not every low wage worker is in restaurant and hotels, but um, it's a low paying sector. If you want to work in it, it probably isn't that hard to get a job in restaurants and hotels right now. Their pay is up over 20% over the last two years. That far exceeds inflation. So when we hear these stories, oh, people at the bottom are really hurting. Yeah, there are tens of millions of people at the bottom are really hurting. Is it worse off today for them than it was in 2019? Well, for most of them, actually, probably not. If they have a really bad job, if their boss is a jerk, they could quit and get a new job. And we have that in the data. So, you know, they keep telling us how much people at the bottom are hurting. That's not reflecting the actual situation of people at the bottom, which, again, I recognize tens of millions are really hurting. But the point is, they didn't say this in 2019. They didn't say that in 2000. That's a choice of the media. So you have a lot of people that are actually doing pretty well um, in the scheme of things. Again, you know, you give someone who's earning, you know, just at the poverty line, give them a 10 percent wage, wage increase, say in excess of inflation. They're still doing poorly. I don't I recognize that. But that's not the way the media ordinarily talks about the situation. So that's one part. The other part, again, Talking about inflation, they've gotten a little bit better, but, you know, there's been this tendency to blame Biden, you know, his his recovery package. And, you know, yes, yeah, some villains here, uh, Larry Summers, my old pal, I'm saying that half cryptically. I know Summers, I, you know, we get along sort of. But in any case, he's been very much, oh, that plan was so horrible, this and that. Well, you have the same inflation. England's over 10 percent. Um, the European Union, it's about eight and a half percent. I have to check the latest number. They're the same as the U.S., some cases higher, some cases lower. The idea that somehow this is all Biden, you know, his horrible um, recovery package, that's nuts. I mean, it's just nuts. So the idea that he should be blamed for this, that, that really doesn't make sense. It's sort of like if we had an area that was devastated by a hurricane and flooding, and then we suddenly went to the mayor or governor and said, what's going on here? You have all these people without housing. Well, you know, there's kind of an obvious explanation for it, and that's pretty much the story here. So I think that's what's what's being missed. And the really, you know, on the one hand, obviously, there's uh, electoral implications. We have an election coming up in the not-distant future. But the other issue is the Federal Reserve Board has been raising rates to, to combat inflation. And if it's combating inflation, that isn't caused by an overheating economy. In other words, it's caused by by the pandemic shutdowns, by uh, disruptions associated with the war in Ukraine, um, then it's going to be throwing a lot of people out of work for no good reason. And that's a very, very big deal in my book. So they're talking about people hurting now. Well, if we raise the unemployment rate two or three percentage points, we can have a lot more people hurting. They're not going to feel better. Yeah. And for me, it's impossible to miss the class conflict aspect of this. 
Because one thing that you see, like, like especially in uh, sort of like business reporting in the Wall Street Journal and other places like that, is how eager sort of the employer class is to smack people down who now have leverage that the, the business class feels they, they do not deserve. And, you know, the, this, the unemployment is only 3.5%. As you said, all the things that are great from the perspective of just if you're a regular working person, like there are all these jobs available. You, if your boss is treating you like crap, you can quit and go someplace else. Like the Wall Street Journal recently had, you know, an op-ed by uh, a business guy that was headlined, a rude awakening is ahead for young employees. A recession will hand the bargaining power to their bosses. Yeah, it's it's it is kind of striking that we see these two things side by side, and you know, at least relatively few people in the media seem to 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 capture that. That on the one hand, you can't tell the story where oh, things are so horrible, workers are quitting all their jobs all the time, meaning that they have the option to take better jobs, and then at the other hand, that oh, things are so bad for these low-paid workers. Those don't go together. So either could be true, but they can't both be true at the same time. I've often said that in my debates that, you know, I'll give you whichever position you want, but I'm going to hold you to it, you know. And, you know, so so if you want to tell me that, oh, you know, these low paid workers, you know, they're no discipline, they could just quit their job. OK, fine. That's what you think. Don't then tell me how bad things are for these low paid workers. Those don't go together. And so uh, beyond talking about the past and the present, let's just make sure to talk a little bit about the future and and how you envision how the future could be. Because as I said, you are continually creatively suggesting ways to use the tools of economics to make things better for regular people. And there are two in particular that I'd like to ask you about. Uh, one is your concept of uh, artistic vouchers, as you call them. And what would these be and what is the rationale for them? Well, I've looked at copyright and patents. I don't know if your next question is going to be on patents. I won't go into it too much. We can come back to it. But I I looked at copyrights and patents as interferences with the market. And it's just kind of mind-boggling to me how many people, including economist-type people, talk about these as being the free market. And they're they're quite explicitly not. You know, these are government-granted monopolies. Now, of course, they serve a purpose. So in the case of copyright, the idea is we give you a copyright, you write a book, you make a movie, you, you make a record or record music. No one else could copy it without your permission. They have to pay you. Okay, so that means that you get a return. Okay, so that, that, that that's a policy. That's a government policy, and it's a clear intervention in the market. So we can decide whether it's good or bad, but the fact that's an intervention in the market is not really debatable. Now, I, I've been looking at the decline, in, well, Two things. One, a lot of abuses associated with copyright. I mean, there have been issues where the Girl Scouts, I remember, or maybe it's the Campfire Girls, they were sued because they sing copyrighted songs around their campfire, and apparently they weren't paying the copyright holders. Um, so, I mean, you can find all sorts of things like that, absolutely nutty, nutty things where people are trying to enforce copyrights. Um, so you find all sorts of abuses associated with copyrights. But the other is that you're actually getting much less money through the system, and it's much more concentrated. So you get, uh, you know, I'm sure Taylor Swift does very well. Bruce Springsteen is doing well. But there's actually very few recording artists who get much through the copyright system. Also, newspapers, as we know, uh, newspaper revenue is just tanked. So it's about a tenth. I'd have to go back and check the exact numbers. But relative to GDP, it's about a tenth of where it was, say, uh, 30 years ago. And that's obviously because of the internet, that you can get so much over the internet. So my view was, can we think of an alternative way 
to support creative work. And that's where these these artistic freedom vouchers, whatever you want to call it, tax credits, where that would come in. So we pick some sum, let's say $200. We say everyone in the country has $200 that they could use to support creative worker, workers of their choice. They can give it to a local newspaper. They can give it to, to uh, someone who records uh, blues music. They can give it to an organization that supports blues music. Condition getting the money is you're not eligible for copyrights. Okay, so you're not eligible for copyright protection for a significant period of time. I put in five years, you know, you could argue could be seven, could argue three. The idea is we don't want someone to make a name for themselves in this system and then run out and say, okay, I'm the next Taylor Swift. I'm going to get, you know, really, really rich. So if you make it five years, you could do that, but then you have to go five years without, you know, getting money from the system before you could actually get a copyright. So to my view, this is a very nice, simple system. The analogy I use is the, the tax deduction for charitable contributions. So I want to uh, make a charitable contribution. I just write down on my taxes that I gave $1,000, $2,000 to whoever. Um, in fact, they don't even ask. They, if I'm audited, I'd have to verify that. But I, I just say, okay, I'm taking a $2,000 deduction. Now, most people itemize so they don't get that deduction, but whatever. Um, so I could, so it's, it's, it'd be treated the same way, but it'd be a credit. So if I'm a low-income person, I don't pay $200 in taxes. I'd have a credit. At the receiving end, I would simply register. I'm a blues musician. I would simply register with the IRS. I, I play blues music. That's what I do. So the IRS doesn't look and say, oh, are you a good blues musician? They just have a record, just like they do today. So people register as a religion. They register as um, a charity, uh, feeding homeless people, whatever it might be. The IRS doesn't assess it. They, doesn't, they don't say, oh, do you do a good job? They just say, okay, that's what you do. Now, in principle, you can be audited. And if it turns out you say, oh, you've been uh, distributing food to homeless people, but there's no record of that, you haven't, you know, well, then fine, you're eligible. You, you'll be charged with fraud. But basically, people just register. And the nice thing about the enforcement mechanism here is, let's say, I, I think I'm a real clever guy. And I get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars through the system for five years. And then I go, oh, now I'm going to hit the really big time and take out a copyright. Well, problem is I've been registered in the system. So it's 2022, 2023, I'm taking out a copyright. So everyone goes, wait a second, you were in the system. We're just going to copy your music. And then I go, no, I'm going to try and enforce the copyright. Well, when I try and enforce the copyright, they just go, you were in the system. And then the judge laughs at me and goes, <laughs> find something else to do with your time. So I think this would be a great way of both supporting a lot more creative work and democratizing it. So uh, everyone would get their, their $200 or whatever the sum is, and they could support creative work. And I'm putting newspapers in this too, that, uh, that they think are valuable. So it wouldn't be just the case. I mean, we'll still have rich people that, you know, Bill Gates might want to give 10 million for this or that. And, you know, this doesn't prevent him from doing that. But what that means is that people who don't have a lot of money could support creative work that they they think is valuable. Yeah, and so uh, people, I think, generally don't think about the fact that we have tried to support creative work via copyright for hundreds of years, but it's never been a system that worked very well. And now we could do it in a way that is possible because of new technology. And if it is $200 a year, like that's really significant in terms of creating a middle class of people who are doing creative work. So, you know, if, if it is a $200 a year, that, that means if you just were able to get 500 fans who liked you so much that they wanted to give you all of their $200, like you would be making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like that would really change the equation of how people are able to be creative in America overnight. 
and you'd see this explosion of the creativity, I think, that is kind of latent in America. There, I mean, America is full of super duper weirdos who have all kinds of strange talents. And all of a sudden, they would be able to, to make a living with those talents. And I just think one of the most exciting and sort of like promising ideas that there could be. And uh, I think it also has, you know, obviously a natural constituency of, of weirdo creative types. Yeah, I think it would be, it would hugely transform creative work and it would just change the dynamics. Again, I don't think anything happens overnight, but if you got this, you envision, you know, what goes on now with Hollywood, with their their movies, a blockbuster movie, they're going to spend 100 million, 150 million, 200 million, with the idea they'll get that back because all these people are going to go out and spend their, I haven't been to a movie for a while, 10 bucks, 12 bucks, whatever it is. Um, and maybe they will. But if people are in the habit that all this stuff's now available free, and I recognize most people will think most of it's crap. I mean, most of it will be crap. I don't know. But a lot of it will be stuff they like. So they might be much more reluctant to go out and spend 10, 12, whatever Hollywood wants them to spend for the latest blockbuster. And, and, and I don't care. I mean, I'm not a diatribe against uh, whatever the latest. I'm just saying, give people choices. Um, and, and what I love about this, you know, you get this thing, oh, the market versus the government. Copyright's not the market. Copyright is government intervention in the market. So I'm talking about a different way in which the government's going to intervene in the market to support uh, creative work and, to my view, a better way. But there is no market story here. If you want a market story, get rid of the copyright altogether and then see how much creative work you'll have. That would be a market story. But if you have copyright, if you have the government giving out a monopoly, that's not a market story. And so lastly, uh, you know, as I say, you have a ton of really promising ideas of how we could make the world better. But let's just talk about uh, one that is sort of along the same lines, which is how could we get uh, better and cheaper drugs? Yeah, well, here too, it's it, it's a comparable story. You know, I think back to my stuff convincing economists that if the consumer price index overstates inflation by a percentage point, then income's been growing one percentage point more rapidly than we thought and presumably will continue to. Um, there's very little appreciation of how much we spend on prescription drugs because of patent monopolies. We're going to spend about $530 billion this year on prescription drugs. It's about 2.2 percentage points of GDP. It's it, That's about 70% of the, the military budget. That's a rough figure, but somewhere in the ballpark. In other words, it's a huge, huge amount of money. Now, suppose we snapped our fingers and we got rid of patents and related protections because there's other similar protections, but we'll say we get rid of all those protections. So all drugs could be produced as cheap generics tomorrow. So anyone in the world could produce them meeting safety standards. I'm not trying to get around safety standards. Those are important. We'd almost certainly be spending less than $100 billion a year. Drugs would be cheap. So we're talking about a situation where you'd be saving somewhere around $400 billion a year. That's just an incredible amount of money. Again, take that over a decade. We're talking about over $4 trillion. That dwarfs anything we ever argue over. And the other side, which I think is every bit as important, in making drugs cheap, you change the whole equation for medicine. So you have situations today, let's say someone's 80 years old, basically in good health, they have cancer. And there's a new treatment that's likely to... to keep the person alive in good health, but it costs 250000 a year. So you go, okay, well, guy's 80 years old. Should we require the insurance company or maybe it's Medicare, whoever it might be, should they spend 250000 a year to keep someone alive who probably doesn't have that long life expectancy anyhow? And, you know, you could argue that maybe it's a tough choice, maybe it's not, but that's at least, you know, perhaps an arguable issue. You go, okay, wait a second. It doesn't cost 250000 for the drug. That's what they're charging because they have a patent monopoly. What does it cost to manufacture and distribute the drug? Well, that's most likely less than $1,000. 
I think it'd just be a few hundred. So if you go, okay, so we got this guy who's 80 years old, and are we going to spend $1,000 a year to keep him alive? You wouldn't even ask the question. It's stupid. So we've made this horrible problem for ourselves by having patent protection driving up the price of drugs, in some cases, a thousandfold above what their free market price would be. And we don't realize that, you know, again, you have people saying, oh, we'll leave it to the free market. The free market doesn't have the patent monopoly. That's a government intervention. And again, as with copyrights, it has a purpose. We, we give an incentive to drug companies to, to invest in developing new drugs, and they do. But there are alternative ways to, to, to finance that. And again, it's very clear. It's the, the mRNA vaccines are a great example. The vast majority of that research on mRNA technology was supported by the National Institutes of Health. The Times had an article about this woman, I think her name's Karenina, she's Hungarian, uh, she's worked in the U.S., it said she never made more than 60000 a year. I'm not saying that's all they should make. I'm just saying this woman was obviously interested in science, committed to what she was doing, and did incredibly important work that was funded through the National Institutes of Health. Then when it actually came to developing the vaccines, Moderna, of course, took the lead there. Well, how did they do it? Well, the government paid them. We paid them $450 million to develop the vaccine, given where they were with the technology. And then we paid another $450 million to do the, the phase three testing, the large scale testing that determined it was safe and effective. So the idea that somehow we couldn't apply that as a more general model, that we're gonna pay for the research upfront, and then anyone who wants to could manufacture the drug anywhere in the world, again, subject to the safety, we're gonna make sure that we're getting safe drugs, we're getting the, you know, the drugs that they're selling are in fact what they're supposed to be selling and they don't have contaminants. That's very important. But the idea that we have to pay these ridiculous prices, that is absurd. It's a problem we create for ourselves and we don't have to do it. I encourage everybody who heard this to, first of all, follow Dean on Twitter, Dean Baker 13 read his book Rigged, which he has just made available for free, like, in the, like putting his money where his mouth is listening to economists and uh, being an economist, I imagine like does not have to be a mind breaking nightmare. It doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be confusing. It doesn't have to be full of mystification. It actually can be when you explain it completely clear, easy to understand for people who do not have PhDs and actually exciting. Like it makes you think, boy, the world really could be a much more interesting and wealthy place in ways that are not necessarily measured by economists, just like measured in human happiness. So thank you for all the work that you've done. And as I say, everybody should be paying attention to what you've said in the past and what I assume you'll be saying in the future. Well, thanks a lot. I, I like to think we make progress here and there, and I think we do sometimes. All right, Dean. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully here at The Intercept, we will talk to you again sometime. Sure. Thanks a lot for having me on. That was Dean Baker, and that's our show. You can find lots and lots more of his work at deanbaker.net. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm John Schwartz. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. Finally, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear each new episode. And also, please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.